Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Julia. It's week 34 of The Pick List. How is your week going so far? Hello, Laura. Really good week. Thank you. I'm doing lots of training still at the moment. So I'm doing my trade PR masterclass uh, that I've developed. And I've also got quite a few writing deadlines at the moment. So it's a pretty packed schedule. What have you been up to? A busy week as well. I've been speaking at the Santander Global Food Forum, uh, representing the meat industry, which was really exciting. And then also we've got Global Meat Alliance this week, and we're hearing from the Americans in terms of what does Joe Biden bring to particularly beef production in the US and what does that mean for global trade? So yeah, another busy one. Uh, But today's pick list is another beauty, isn't it? And we've got a fantastic guest. Absolutely fantastic guest. We're joined by Barbara Bray, founder of Allo Solutions. Barbara is just brilliant. She knows the feed industry so, so well, has an extensive background in food safety um, and nutrition, and is just someone who's really across the sustainability debate as well. So uh, we had a fantastic time talking to her, and she picked some really interesting, meaty articles for us to discuss as well. If you enjoy The Pick List, please do rate and review. And also, we're now on Instagram at The Pick List Podcast. So we post on there quite a bit. So we'd love you to be following us. Shall we start the show? Barbara, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. I'm really looking forward to today's session. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners who you are and how you're connected to food and drink? My name's Barbara Bray. I'm a food safety and nutrition consultant, and I work mainly with SMEs, helping them with technical standards to make sure they've got the right food safety things in place to make sure that they supply their retailers and everybody to the right level. And more recently, since I did a Nuffield Farming Scholarship in 2016, I've taken more of an interest in nutrition strategy. So I'm a registered nutritionist, and I've been helping businesses to look at what they can do differently and better in their businesses to get better nutritional quality or look at their strategy of how they can deliver better nutrition either in retail or the food service sectors. And obviously nutrition and health has become much more of a focus um, in the wake of COVID as well. Can you perhaps sort of share some observations of how you have seen feed companies but perhaps also consumers change their expectations around healthy, nutritious foods? It was interesting. So I remember looking at uh, Google Analytics back in, I think it was March, April time, and you could see that there was a a lot of searches around the term immunity and vegetables and that type of thing, as as people were literally scanning whatever they could for information about health. We didn't know a lot of information at that point. What we've seen since then, and as nutritionists, we do laugh about it, it's like people have split into two camps. There's been the camp who've kind of gone, I need to get out for a run every day. I need to eat lots of fruit and vegetables. And it's the camp of people who said, okay, I've got my beer, I've got my wine, I've got my food, I'm going to sit on the sofa. And there hasn't really been much in between. So 
So some people have actually done both, which is interesting, you know, flipped from one to the other. But I think for those who've gone down the health route, we've seen that there's been an increase in scratch cooking. So there's been an increase in the amount of, of fresh foods that have been bought, whether they've ended up in waste or not. I will probably come on to that because I know that in the first lockdown, there was very little food waste. But obviously, as the food service sector opened up and in between lockdowns, people have been able to have access to takeaways and some restaurant foods. So again, that's encouraged a little bit more waste as people haven't been planning. So all of these things are interconnected. There's been consequences of people's changes of behaviour, either on their health or for the environment, for example. And the pick list, of course, is all about uh, highlighting interesting articles from the world of food and drink. So we do want to quiz you a little bit on your reading habits. How do you stay up to date on what's happening in the industry? What sorts of publications do you read on a regular basis? I have quite an eclectic taste, it has to be said. The things I subscribe to, Fresh Produce Journal, because I've been doing it for nearly 20 years, so it's just like it renews itself. And um, it's only during lockdown that I realised how tight I actually am because I tend to read a lot of publications whilst I'm at my clients. So the ones who subscribe to The Grocer, Farmers Weekly, all of these kind of technical publications, I've just been flicking through them and having a coffee in the office, not actually buying them. So I've realised now that maybe I should start investing in them. Now I'm not as able to go to clients all the time. But the things I like to read, there's a, a new publication, Quota, which is online. A friend of mine, Gavin Wren, started that up a few months ago. He's somebody who's gone into the food policy space in the last few years, gone from creative design and photography, he used to do stuff for the National Geographic. But what I'm finding is the articles in Quota magazine are very interesting, and I like the angle that they take on a lot of their stories. Obviously, things like The Grocer, Readly is an app that I have on my phone, and I tend to... That tends to be more leisure stuff. So things like women's health and open water swimmer, I tend to watch, uh, tend to read things like that on Readly. And then when I'm scrolling through LinkedIn or Instagram or, or various bits of social media, there'll be things like plant-based news that I'll pick up and look at certain articles. But from a, a professional perspective, I like my Institute of Food Science and Technology journal, my In Nutrition Society journal, so public health and nutrition. I get world of food ingredients just so I can see what type of ingredients are coming through and looking at innovation. And then New Food is a magazine that I like to dip in and out of a lot. And one which is a bit of a guilty secret because, you know, my family, we don't read The Spectator because it's not very pleasant the way it frames certain types of communities in society. But their food section is really good and a few of my friends write for it. So I don't tell my family that I read that. <laughs> Fantastic. And tell us about the first article you've picked for us this week. So this Sunday I was reading the, oh sorry, this Saturday actually, it was the I, so um, the Independent. And the article's called Calls to Make Access to Food a Legal Right. And this jumped out at me because in the last week or so I've been working with a client and looking at food affordability and food insecurity and looking at some of the, the goals, the UN 2030 goals, so that agenda of getting zero hunger and zero poverty and what we're doing about it internationally to make that a reality. So we know that COVID-19 has really set us back and it's increased inequality around the world and it's increased the amount of food insecurity. And some countries are performing better than others in that they have safety nets in place. 
and others are going one step further and making sure that the provision of food is actually a legal right. So it's the government's responsibility to make sure everybody gets food. And so in our country, obviously, we've got a food a safety net, we have food banks, we've got a welfare system, but there are still people falling through the gaps. And when you look at this article, it's come out of Liverpool, where leaders there, political leaders are saying, we need to have this legal access to, legal right to access to food. And I do think it's really important because we can't have people falling through the gaps in a country where we're, you know, we're the sixth richest nation in the world. And in terms of food security, we're also sixth. So, you know, there's a good few countries below us who are doing this slightly better. And I just think we need to look at our society and how we manage vulnerable people and make sure that everybody has at least something to eat that's of good nutritional quality. I was really interested by this article, Barbara, and I think what it sprung to mind for me, and I'm sure it does for you as well, because I know you, you speak at so many different conferences and, and, and a delegate too, that we hear so often, particularly from farmers and producers, that uh, consumers need to pay more for food and arguably they maybe need to particularly for the meat sector should be maybe eating less you, you hear that quite a bit but pay more for it and we've got some of the in terms of percentage of d domestic uh, income uh, expenditure rather we're spending around nine percent one of the cheapest countries in the world for food and but still we've got a huge chunks of our population that are going hungry how how do we and i'm going to throw a question back at you how do you think we balance that because you you, you know one day listening to henry dumbleby talking about the national food strategy and we need to make sure we do something and i totally agree with that and then the next time you listen to a farmer that's saying i'm not making any money from producing what i'm producing and i need to be able to sell it at a higher price what where's the disconnect i think we we need to put clear water between the price of food and availability. I think a farmer needs to be fairly recompensed, but it doesn't mean that, that, that people should be priced out of food. What we need to look at is how we are paying people. So a lot of the people, you know, we've got 10 million people in, in food poverty in the UK, and they're not sat at home. These are people, some of them have two or three jobs. So they're, they're obviously earning a wage, but that wage isn't sufficient for them to pay for a roof over their head and to eat. And that shouldn't be a choice. So we should either find a way of levelling people up or we can carry on on the route we are doing and, and giving people food, which I think doesn't help people with their dignity. Everyone wants to be able to choose their food and be able to move around society and, and do the things that they would like to do. And I think if you're so poor that you can't have any kind of leisure or pleasure in your life and you can't choose your own food, something's gone wrong. And that's not about reducing the price of food. That's about levelling up and making sure that everyone has access to a good quality life. So perhaps making more things free at the point of use. So people aren't having to pay as much for transport or pay less for housing. I think that's where we need to put the focus. It's about getting rid of the poverty piece, not bringing the price of food down. I, I think that, that's a different argument. We need to focus yeah. on how we give people more cash in their pockets so that they can choose their own food. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, sometimes when we talk about food poverty, um, as you say, it's really, we need to be talking about poverty. And food just happens to be one flashpoint where, you know, poverty can be, can be particularly visible. 
but it's not about having a food specific solution necessarily it's it's about as you say leveling people up more generally and of course you know you you want to see the government engaging with this fully as well and i've seen some some articles in the trade press recently i think the grocer in particular wrote a really strong piece on this at the disappointment of the fact that the government's response to to the national food strategy has not been made public at this stage and of course it's so important that we actually see which direction the government is heading on this and and making it sort of um its response to an important strategy document like this public um so hopefully pressure on that point will will stay relatively high and they are going to actually make that public as well i do hope so we need to do something because we're just seeing a, an increase in the number of people who don't have regular access to food. And I just think we've, we've got to a point now where we can't ignore that and we need to take action. Julia, what's your first pick this week? So my first pick this week is a blog post from MediaTel titled Dead Cat Distractions and Sticky Slogans, written by Dominic Mills, who used to be editor of Campaign magazine. Um, it's the sticky slogans bit of the blog post that interests me specifically because it's about the new Sainsbury's slogan, uh, which has been covered quite widely in, in a whole range of publications. Helping everyone eat better, that's the new slogan, and it replaces live well for less. I picked this blog post partly because slogan changes are always interesting and I really just want to know what you both make of the new one. But also what I think is interesting here is how the new slogan indicates a sort of change of emphasis and direction for Sainsbury's. Because what we're getting here now is an explicit reference to eating, to food, as opposed to living. Um, and I think after all sorts of non-food expansion, Argos, Habitat, etc., um, which has really dominated the, the headlines and the conversation about a lot of these big retailers for a while, it very much feels like this is bringing food back to being at the centre of the business. Dominic points out also that the new slogan is being seen as a really big play by Sainsbury's for ethically minded and sustainability conscious shoppers, that aspiration towards better. Um, and it should be said that the launch of the new slogan was tied in with an announcement that Sainsbury's is sponsoring this year's COP26 conference in Glasgow. But it's not just about sustainability. We've already talked about uh, food quality and nutrition. Eating better, of course, also speaks to quality and health. And I suppose helping everyone does also speak to what we talked about just now in terms of affordability and inclusiveness, hopefully, although arguably a little less directly than live well for less, where we have that very specific uh, reference to less and, and low prices by implications. And dropping that reference to price and value has raised some eyebrows. I was interested to see um, the, the leader column in, in The Grocer this weekend about the new slogan where um, Adam Leyland, the editor of The Grocer, said he thought it was a little bit strange that they have chosen to lose the reference to value at a time when there's a price match happening with Aldi and consumers are certainly expected to be pretty budget conscious. The other thing that Dominic points out in his blog, which I thought was interesting, is that um, Sainsbury's has had quite a few slogan changes in relatively quick succession. Live well for less only lasted a decade, which is quite short for corporate slogans. Before that was try something new today and making life better, both of which lasted up for about six years. And Dominic sees this um, as a sign of 
I suppose, a struggle for a clear identity and place in the market, potentially. And he contrasts it uh, with Tesco, which has had every little helps for the best part of 30 years now. Um, but all in all, plenty to unpick. But I thought that that refocusing around eating and food was was particularly eye catching in this new slogan. Barbara, what do you think of it? Do you like the new slogan? Do you think it's an improvement on uh, live well for less? I didn't have a problem with the previous one, but I do like this one, you know, helping everyone eat better. It does speak to Sainsbury's move towards inclusivity. And I know that they've had a bit of a, a bumpy road in the last year or so on inclusivity. And this using that term everyone, I think they've, they've hit the nail right on the head. And the word better, obviously, it's not focused specifically on a nutrition message. Like you mentioned, it's also a climate change message or maybe even stretched to a biodiversity message. But I like the idea of it, it kind of smacks of a bit of COVID hangover. We're all in this together <laughs> sort of type of thing. But I think it is important because I think historically, when you look at messages on food that have come from the government, they've always been placing people as fully responsible for the choices that they make almost forgetting that the choices that we make are from what was put in front of us. So if I walk into a shop, I can only choose from what's there. I, I can't have anything bespoke. So it's about saying that we're hand in hand or working with you to make sure that your diet is sustainable for health and sustainable for the planet and sustainable economically. So yes, it doesn't say all of those things overtly, but it does point and signpost us to that kind of, of language and that kind of, of rhetoric. Yeah, I was really interested by this as well, and surprisingly, um, from, from a marketing perspective. And as you say, the, the coverage then subsequently um, across the grocer and others about the JS having conversations with their supply base to to help them with their Aldi price match. I, I think it's pretty challenging around, I guess, the, the first article we're just picking up on around better. So if you, how can it be better if it's going to be cheaper? And how do you get that balance right, as we've alluded to? And, and to me, naturally, better means, does it mean organic? Does it mean paying the supply chain more? Does it, as Barbara says, putting healthy choices, as we've spoken about on previous shows, in front of people and, and leading them down that route? But how can you do that when you're, you're squeezing the supply base? Laura, what's your first pick for us? My first pick this week um, is about the latest Kantar figures and it's being covered by uh, quite a few different titles. So I've picked the uh, article from The Guardian with the headline, Aldi Little Lose Out as UK Grocery Online Sales Hit New Heights. And this is uh, reporting on four-week data, which is really fascinating to see. And it's saying uh, in the article, that online grocery sales accounted for a record 15.4% of the market in the four weeks up to the 21st of Feb, up from 8. 7 last year which is just a startling figure isn't it and you think how would it have almost doubled but but we have uh, because of the uh, the c word uh, as all big supermarkets have increased their provision of deliveries according to the uh, Kantar research and Fraser McEvitt uh, we, we know well from Kantar is saying nearly a quarter of households bought groceries online during the past month making it the most of home deliveries especially for uh, get to get hold of bulkier items which I thought was really fascinating actually often don't think of that but yeah canned goods breakfast cereals soft drinks the things that were a pain to carry now getting them online and it's been an extraordinary 12 months 
and the um, last month uh, for the first time we saw Aldi and Lidl lose share and this is because uh, Fraser is saying that, that sales in the discounters are up um, but not strongly enough compared to the others um, and Tesco being the biggest winner within within that and there's an opportunity and a question around what will happen when the pandemic ends. Will more default back into the uh, discounters or will this stick? And, and we talk about stickiness of trends so much over the last that's the last 12 months. The, the article also throws a couple of nice stats out there in terms of um, food service being closed. What does that mean for the, the last 12 months? Well, it means we've cooked uh, 7 billion more meals at home, which is uh, absolutely frightening. We've made 2 billion extra cups of tea uh, at home uh, and we've spent an extra 15.2 billion pounds worth on grocery food. Uh, with food service being closed, which averages out household spend expenditure of uh, 4,800 a year, uh, up £500 a year on food. Mm-hmm. So, Barbara, what do you make of this? And are you seeing, I guess, with some of the, the clients that you have, that online is just so much more important than, than it ever was? But And I know what was going through Julia's mind. Uh, if I know her well enough by now, she'll be thinking, yeah, but 80% is still in store. And uh, don't lose sight of that while we're looking at this sparkly price of wow it's 15% is online you know lion shares still in store what are your thoughts it's interesting because a few years ago when I was doing my Nuffield farming scholarship I spent some time in Shanghai and I remember talking to a lady who was explaining to me how online works there that she could you know it's four o'clock in the afternoon and she showed me on her phone an app where she could buy the components for a meal for her, her and her 14 year old son she said I'm going to get that delivered from, and she pointed out the window to a shop that was just within eye shot and said they're going to deliver that to my door within 60 minutes and I was absolutely blown away and that's how people were shopping there everyone was getting their, their supermarket shop delivered within one hour slots and I remember thinking oh well in five years time we're going to be there it's interesting because we've had the COVID-19 pandemic and yes we're, we're now at this 80-20 place where 20% of people are, are now getting shopping online but you still have to book it a week in advance (laughs) you know we're still not there yet there is still some work to do and when you look at how online delivery is changing things it's still moving behind other countries I think there's still some mileage to be had in how we tailor it how we make the actual delivery a lot more efficient and I think shops like Aldi and Lidl will just be playing catch-up because they'll only be able to to keep growing in the area of the market where people aren't able to engage with the online platforms so well either because you know they don't want to do technology or they can't afford to access technology via smartphones or whatever it is so I think Aldi and Little will struggle if they don't make an effort or don't change their strategy to embrace that new technology but I think everyone needs to get to that one hour delivery slot and then we're all happy. I'm disappointed that I'm so predictable in my uh, in my responses, apparently. But yes, you're absolutely right. Um, yes, they, we're still looking at, you know, more than an 80-20 split. Um, I think it's so interesting to look at what's happened with, with the discounters um, during COVID and, and, and as a result of that boom in online. Um, and of course, the fact that we've had two very sort of high profile price matching schemes recently from Tesco and Sainsbury's, you know, really kind of taking that fight to Aldi suggests that they are definitely sensing an opportunity here to reclaim, um, I think, a little bit of ground. But price is still going to be super, super important for lots of shoppers and is going to be more important than 
convenience around delivery um, and being able to pop into a store. I think once you no longer have uh, social distancing um, restrictions, those smaller stores, which could feel a little bit cramped and uh, not necessarily unsafe, but I think a little bit less comfortable than some of the big uh, supermarkets, that's going to be less of a problem. Um, so I I wouldn't write them off yet. Um, and I think we we talked about um, some of those sort of dynamics with Manisha last week as well, didn't we? Of, of how that sort of budget consciousness um, is, is still going to be a really, really important um, part of the market. The other thing I found, I, I did a webinar recently um, where there was some consumer research, um, including looking at some sort of consumer insight around people who were shopping online um, and some of the pain points they were experiencing while shopping online. And I thought there were quite a few interesting bits in that that suggest there is still a lot for retailers to get right to hold on to those shoppers that have tried online for the first time. And it's not just um, delivery slots, although that's obviously a, a really big pain point still. It's not just substitutions and availability, but it's also still concerns around quality. Being unhappy about some fresh produce items and, and the way they were picked and delivered, um, you know, sort of difficulties finding products and, and all of that. So I think that sense that of, you know, oh, well, everyone who has tried online for the first time is going to keep trying online. I don't know, I feel like there's still quite a lot of work to be done to make sure these people really turn into loyal repeat customers. Barbara, tell us about your second pick. So again, from Saturday, I was looking at the Financial Times and this article is Ocado raises capacity to reach a larger swathe of UK. So picking up that theme again on online shopping and Ocado, they really struggled last year because they just couldn't expand quickly enough with all the demand. So they're now looking at a smaller warehouse format to allow them to expand geographically, go further north, for example, because a lot of the growth was in the south of the country. And us folk up north and those in Scotland probably want to see a little bit of that as well. But they, they, they were literally dwarfed by Tesco. So in the article, they talk about how Tesco had 1.5 million slots and Ocado had three, 374,000 last at the end of last year. So there really was a need because the market was growing very, very quickly and they just weren't able to rally round and change things in time. But one of the things they are looking at, which alludes to what I spoke about earlier, was having a what they call a Zoom service. So nothing to do with online conferencing, but more about that rapidity of delivery. So taking small basket shops of less than 40 pounds, getting them to people in a hurry. So the example I gave of the lady in Shanghai, that, that's finally here. <laughs> it might only be in one or two places, but I think it's something that's worth rolling out. This is not about the people who want to do the family shops and who are doing the planning and talking about cooking from scratch and doing a proper budget plan. This is a bit more last minute. I want to fill my basket with something fresh and I want it at the same kind of time frame that I use for uh, I don't know, an Uber Eats or a Just Eat. So they're pitching themselves in, in that slot. And I think that will compete. I know we're going to have food service that's going to be a lot more available once we come out of lockdown. But I still think that having that flexibility around delivering something to your home that's really exactly what you want might compete with that restaurant experience if you were only using that restaurant experience because you couldn't get what you wanted from the supermarket. So... I think there is a little bit of that going on. It'll be interesting to see how our habits actually change once 
lockdown is over and if people start going back into the office, maybe not necessarily five days a week, but even if it's two or three days a week. Yeah, really fascinating. It's been interesting as well, hasn't it, over the uh, weekend press about some of the big banking groups uh, nailing the colours to the mast about future working policies. You know, Goldman Sachs CEO being pretty upfront that you, we want you back in the office once this is all over full time, whereas HSBC and others are maybe more willing to look at a hybrid model and massive players like that will have a huge imbalance, won't they, in places like London. And I always feel, and I know I feel like a bit of a broken record, so Julian knows what I'm about to say now, is uh, <laughs> it feels distant for in the northeast. It feels like a long way away and when I read this article it was fascinating when it's yeah as, as you said there Barbara the furthest north uh, the um, distribution centre was Warwickshire which is it's a bit of a hike isn't it so it'll be interesting to see when they do do uh, more more of this further north and particularly Scotland and that the, you know there's massive affluent areas that they're not tapping into and interesting as well is, is, is uh, the article picks out this being 50-50 with M&S that you've got amazing amount of consumers that would love to get this but just haven't because of the uh, of the model that they've got but I didn't quite wasn't quite sure how this fits with um, Mel Smith talking at the city food lecture about the reason that they've got efficiencies is having this centralized system and not having RDCs and being able to get efficiencies and economies of scale by having the, a few distribution centers so as soon as that sort of spider's web grows does that create unintended consequences by having more waste and and that sort of thing which they're managing to stamp out by having only a couple of centres. Did you predict that's what I was going to say Julia? <laughs> it's a pretty close prediction yeah. <laughs> I think one of the things that I thought was was interesting as well is um, this focus on prioritising existing customers. I think that's quite an interesting um, st strategic decision to say that actually, yes, there would have been an opportunity to try and get loads and loads of new customers into the business, but there was a very deliberate decision to say, um, we are going to reward people who have been uh, loyal customers um, already. I think that's, um, I mean, I suppose time will tell whether that was the right the, the right strategy, but I think it's an, it's an interesting, deliberate choice uh, to be making. Um, as you say, I think that partnership with, with M&S so it was such an eye-catching move and of course it would have been that perfect platform to start um you know getting getting more customers in so I, I they're obviously very very keen to get that capacity up to really make the most of um of, of that partnership that whole question of you know how fast is fast enough and what are you what are the expectations around express delivery I mean, it's changing so quickly. You know, we a few episodes ago, we talked about Getir, that Turkish company that started coming into London. I mean, it's a sort of terrifying race. And I suppose for, for many of these retailers, they have to sort of decide, well, what, what are customers actually prepared to pay a premium for? And what is sort of, you know, potentially quite an eye-catching fast turnaround time, but not something that, that that's sort of really scalable. Because, yeah, when once you've got people offering 15-minute delivery, your one-hour delivery doesn't look quite so, so quick in comparison. I think this is where the whole piece around local and availability comes into its own, doesn't it? Because you might start seeing more partnerships between the, the kind of food delivery people and local shops. Because I know that 
the first lockdown that we had. Um, I suppose, yeah, we all had, we had a national lockdown. Manchester's had more lockdowns than others. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I remember seeing a delivery driver come with a bag of food that from a, I think it was my local petrol station that's got a shell shop and I hadn't realized that you could order stuff from the Shell petrol station and have it delivered so you started to see these tie-ups on the e-commerce side that people historically would never have bothered with because we were all driving to the Shell petrol station because we needed fuel and we had somewhere to go but obviously within a, a lockdown scenario the petrol stations and the shops were still there but actually the food could come to you via a delivery app so I think you'll start to see that innovative thinking and that expansion into different models start to come through. Julia, what's your second pick? My second pick is from Sifted and it's an article titled Dutch supermarket app Crisp raises 30 million euros. We're sort of staying with e-commerce, but also fresh food and convenience and availability. This article really caught my eye, uh, partly because I didn't know about Crisp. And I always think it's really interesting to look at what players are available in other markets and what the various models are. Um, but again, because this article also touches on those wider themes that, that we've been talking about quite a bit. Um, so Crisp are a online-only supermarket that was founded in, in 2018. It's now the fastest-growing supermarket in the Netherlands, from a small base, of course, but, but fast-growing nevertheless. And what it offers is next-day delivery on about 2,000 2, items sourced from 650 suppliers across the Netherlands. The main customer group is young families doing their weekly shop with average basket size of about 45 items worth 95 euros. And there's some interesting bits and bobs about crisp and how they work that I think are, are worth discussing. Um, fresh is a really important focus for them. So the vast majority of the 2000 items you can buy through the app are fresh food staples. So fruit and veg, bread, cheese, eggs, meat, etc. They're looking to expand the range and as part of that they will be looking to add more ambient lines, more convenience foods as well. But they really see the quality of the fresh produce as the big point of difference. They're not interested in just expanding the range in order to be able to say we've got 5,000 items. It's, it's that freshness that, that's really driving adoption and, and retention for them. They are also really big on referrals and making it easy for customers to become advocates of the brand. So there's a special feature within the app that allows you to share an item you've bought via WhatsApp just by, through the touch of a button. And they say that referral feature is now their biggest customer acquisition channel, which I thought was really interesting. And they do also offer some great incentives and rewards if you refer friends to the app, including I think it was a cheese board if you refer three friends, which uh, sounds like a great incentive to me. The other thing that I thought was so interesting here is the supply chain setup. And we've already talked about, you know, the sort of need for faster delivery times and efficiency within these online uh, e-commerce supply chains. So Crisp essentially is not a retailer. It doesn't hold any stock itself. It's more like a marketplace. And the way it works is that every day customers place orders for the following day until 10 p.m., and then Crisp confirms those orders with its suppliers, those 650 different suppliers across the Netherlands, who then deliver their produce to Crisp's warehouse in Amsterdam overnight or early the next morning. And then Crisp's team repackages the orders and delivers the orders across the Netherlands. 
And I thought that was quite interesting. Um, and it, this sort of marketplace model is obviously something that we have here as well and, and have had for, for some time. But the article doesn't really go into what the financial arrangement between CRISP and those suppliers is, but it's obviously potentially an easy and convenient route to market for some of those smaller suppliers that perhaps wouldn't be able to get the scale just selling through their own web shops. Um, it does sound reasonably complex, um, and it's clearly not compatible with some of those super fast delivery times we've been we've been talking about. Crisp say their customers are not really fussed about that. That you know, actually having a, a one day turnaround is is totally fine. But of course, as the market moves more towards those rapid delivery times, you do wonder whether expectations are are going to change um, around that. And I did also wonder about how much of an issue availability and substitutions might be with this kind of setup where you've got orders coming in until 10 p.m., then your orders are confirmed, and then you need to get everything ready um, overnight and, and the next day. It sounds like a setup where there might potentially be um, some some vulnerabilities. But interesting and really interesting that they're growing so fast. One thing I picked up from the article was that whole piece around planning. So this is something that people who have have families, young families, are doing probably from a budgeting point of view. So they've planned their meals for the week and they know exactly what they want. So they're less, it's not about the time, it's more about having that convenience of having something delivered to your door, but also they're in control of their shop and in control of their cooking. So I think for that, that cohort of people, that is really useful. And I'm surprised it hasn't stretched out to older adults, so empty nesters, people who aren't having to cook for small children, but are tending to be quite predictable in what they eat because they're just the do of them, they're trying to get through the week and they have the same sorts of shopping habits and, and eating habits. So it did surprise me that if you've got people in that kind of young family age group, they aren't telling their parents to join and do the same thing. It seems to have expanded in that, that one age group, which which surprised me, but I do see that eventually working here if we can make sure, I guess, year round that we don't have the vulnerabilities of not being able to get something into the country quickly enough to to meet the the fulfilment that we have to do. And the couple of things that struck me from the article, um, and and Barbara's totally right in terms of availability, was um, the the imagery that included in the article that I've spent a a bit of time over the last couple of months looking at the UK retailers' online propositions and that they are a bit of a much of a muchness and as we know some use similar platforms but this one looked so different in terms of high visuals it looked like the pinterest of buying food which made you feel hungry and i think uh, sometimes in um in the grocery sector we're not always great at doing that in terms of inspiring people to feel hungry and particularly if it's using fresh ingredients so i i thought that that was really funky and as you say julie that referral tool to make people inspired about food and I think, to, back to one of Barbara's earlier points, even if we're going to get a delivery slot tomorrow, I think, you know, I'd be pretty happy with that. I think that's great. Order by 10pm and it's and it's coming. Um, yeah, because at the moment, it's standard what you may be looking at a week, 10 days on occasions if you're not organised. Yeah, and I think what you were saying there about the quality of the imagery and really kind of making you feel like you're selling food and not sort of products in a way I think sometimes with the the sort of e-commerce setups on on some of the retailers it's quite clinical isn't it it's it's all very streamlined and it it has to be for for good reasons but it doesn't really scream edible 
it sort of just looks like, yeah, it, it, it looks like products. And I think that sort of inspiration piece and really making people feel like they're buying into exciting recipes, I think that that's, has to be a, a big part of the next evolution of that. So even if you look at recipe services like Gusto here, you know, I occasionally get, get Gusto for, for our evening meals and it feels like you're buying a meal, like a great kind of eating experience and something that makes you feel excited and you're sort of, you're scrolling through really sort of interesting looking dishes that, yeah, as Laura says, make you feel hungry. That experience, I think, is still missing quite a bit from, from the sort of classic retailer e-commerce sites at the moment. I think you're right. Another thing I picked out for the article, though, they were talking about that whole sustainability piece. And I liked the fact that they had the electric vehicles and they talked a lot about provenance and, and buying local. I think that that definitely appeals to that age group as well. So they, they really have done their market research and they're, they're meeting needs in more than one way. That's not just about supplying food and a, a shopping experience. It's the overall picture that they've been very good at meeting. Laura, what's your second pick for us? My second pick this week is also from iNews and it's Food Waste Action Week, leading food brands and universities and councils support inaugural climate campaign. And I was really interested by this actually because I'd been seeing the campaign popping up on social media by so many um, producers in the food industry, particularly on LinkedIn and, and sort of sharing high quality graphics about this week and I thought I need to find out more about it and, and this article do, does a good job talking uh, you through it. So the week is actually um, part of, of RAP uh, and that's the Waste and Resources Action Programme uh, and they're a bit, a bit of quite a force of nature actually in, in the food world to try and re reduce the amount of food waste uh, and they predict around about a third of the food that's produced is wasted which is absolutely shocking isn't it and I was at um, a conference probably about 18 months ago and uh, the speaker was talking around this topic and said you know if a third of the cars that Audi produced were wasted you know it would be unthinkable why are we doing that to food and you think yeah actually if you compare it with another sector but I know it's complex and it's difficult and you're dealing with not only food service supermarkets and also in in the home but what that data then um, goes on to say is about eight to ten percent of um, greenhouse gas emissions are created by this waste um, and then having this week for the very first time brings the industry together to, to talk about these issues and hopefully overcome them. And it's been really interesting as well that it has this B2B angle, as I mentioned, on things like LinkedIn, big brands talking about it and big producers talking about it. But it's also had a B2C angle. And Nadia Hussein of uh, British Bake Off fame has been the face of the week as well to try and get more consumers engaged. Um, it's underpinned by the fact the UN's uh, sustainable development goals by 2030, one and a half the amount of uh, food that we're wasting. And I guess if, if nothing else, it's underlined by um, David Attenborough, who was speaking at one of the UN's food uh, security councils last week. And one of the quotes in the article mentions that uh, he said, if we can continue on the current path, we will face the collapse of everything that gives us our security, food production, access to fresh water, habitable ambient temperature and ocean food chains. And... I, I, I'm just really interested to get your views, really, because as I say, I just I didn't know the week was coming. But every time I go on LinkedIn, there's visuals and you think, yeah, I do need to make sure on a personal level, um, uh, waste less food. But also these big corporates are, are, are really driving this as well. Barbara, have you been bombarded? What are your thoughts? 
Well, I saw Nadia's face on everything. So the last couple of days, she just keeps popping up. But I do like their choice of having her as a celebrity that's that's facing because I think she's she's non-confrontational. A lot of people just get her. She can talk about how you can make changes and improvements. And you, you feel like it's your next door neighbor or a friend telling you, you don't feel lectured to. You feel like, oh, that's a good idea. I'll take that on board. So I think they've got it spot on from that point of view. It's more about encouraging people and signposting them rather than saying, you know, all this food that you're wasting and talking about the, the loss, you know, that obviously is the underlying message, but I think it's how the message is delivered is gonna depend on how people change their behavior. I think that behavior change piece is a really difficult one to manage. So great that they've got this whole week of action, but I'd like to see what they're gonna to do to continually get people educated and, and bring them on that journey. It's not just about one week a year when you make sure you plan your meals and you don't waste anything. It's in fact the whole entire year because producers have spent a lot of time and energy to get that food out there and grown against all the elements. And if you look at some of the food security issues that have been faced globally in the last year or so, from fires to floods to, you know, whole vegetable crops being wiped out in parts of the world or locusts coming, that there are so many constraints that farmers have to cope with. That the fact that we then get that food, stick it in the fridge and decide not to eat it and it goes straight in the bin, it's such a waste. So I think it's great that we've got this campaign. It would be good to see how it gets tracked and how we get encouraged to waste less. And then once the food service comes back online at the end of lockdown, will we still maintain good habits or will we slip back into old ways? I'm also fascinated and I'd love your take on this, Barbara, actually. I'm I'm always interested in how different government campaigns and messages marry up or don't. And I feel like with food waste in particular, I I wish there were more practical guidance for consumers on how to square healthy eating and diet advice with a desire to waste less food. Because I think there are some contradictions sometimes. The whole clear your plate, eat, you know, eat your fridge clean is not necessarily compatible with, you know, maintain a healthy body weight and, you know, and don't overeat. And I just think sometimes those campaign messages, and just as a consumer, I feel like there's very little practical advice on how to marry them up. Um, and we're, we're so happy to sort of celebrate food not being wasted and there are apps that allow you to pick up loads and loads of food for super cheap and yay it didn't get wasted but then are we asking the question of well is it a better outcome for someone to have now eaten all of this food or do we also need to you know ask sort of slightly tougher questions about how the food waste avoidance feeds in with with what we're, we're hoping for in terms of health and and nutrition what do you think I do agree, Julia. I think joined up thinking is missing. And we, we saw it last year where we had Eat Out to Help Out and an obesity campaign running side by side. It's, like, it's not rocket science, people. You know, just have a little bit more clarity of thought around what you're actually doing. If you want the economy to improve, then fine. But there are other ways of doing it. You can facilitate it without encouraging people to overeat, especially in obesity week or, you know, anti-obesity week. So I think you're right in that we need to be careful around how we're encouraging people to avoid food waste. And to me, it's about the whole piece around planning what you're going to eat. So if you do want to have a takeaway and if you do want to go and eat out, whatever it is, you're not also buying food at the same time that's going to go to waste. 
and with my food safety hat on, we do have certain issues in that we know that there are certain types of food that are, are prone to being abused in the home and more likely to cause food poisoning and you know, have an infection. So it's about making sure that we get that clear message out about how to handle food and how to keep it. But I think the important thing is making sure that we're not just randomly buying any old thing that we see in the supermarket because it's on special offer or because we fancy it that day, but then forget we already had one in the fridge when we get home. So, you know, I'm, I don't take myself out of this argument. I am a sucker for any deals or anything. I say, oh, that looks really nice. And, yeah, there's only me in my household. I can't eat it twice. So, <laughs> it's about understanding that as a, as a human, our behaviour is driven around satisfying our, our kind of cravings and, and doing what we really enjoy. But we don't necessarily link that to the outcome in that if I can't eat that food and I can't give it away, actually, it's going to go in the bin. So you're right. We're not being helped in the messaging. And going back to what I said earlier about how we've always pushed back responsibility on what we eat as an individual responsibility. It's not. We all need to work together as a food system. So whether that's on the retail or on the production or on the advertising, it's about having consistent messages and helping people have a consistent behaviour. And I don't think at the moment the messaging is really helpful. It's bombarding us with different things and we're just reacting to that. And it's not it's not helpful from a nutrition point of view. It's not helpful from a climate point of view or food waste or whatever you want to call it. And can I, um, I'd love to pick your brains on something that I often mention as well is about the, um, the, the fact that cooking and home economics isn't, um, I, I don't know if it's on the curriculum at the moment, but it's come on and off at a rate of knots. Um, you're shaking your head, so it's, it's not. How much of that is a factor in this? Because if you've got a few ingredients in your fridge and it's not quite the meal that you were preparing or leftovers, you know, and, and again, I might be rose-tinted spectacles here, but back in the day, if you had cooking skills, you'd think, I'll be able to rustle something up with that and I'll be able to do something. Whereas... I'm a terrible cook so I'd be thinking oh I'm not quite sure what to do with that uh, <laughs> so can I stir fry it if I can't stir fry it I'm probably in trouble so you know it's it, it, is that a, a massive factor in this as well that you know it, we need to be making sure we're upskilling our communities to be able to cook in the first place no, it, always, it always has been a problem because when you think back to our parents' generation, it was mainly women who were taught to cook. So it's like 50% of the population didn't know how to cook and we still managed. So I think, yes, it, you know, it's one of the factors, but I think we need to accept that not every single individual is going, going to have cooking skills. And there are some people who are in an institutional setting or the way in which they lead their lives, it might just be as easy for them to get a meal that's already cooked. So yes, I think it's helpful, but it's not the only thing that we can do to help ourselves. It's just one of the tools in the toolkit for people who are accepting that they can learn and, and can have that particular skill. I'd say it's definitely useful, but going back to a couple of generations ago, not everyone knew how to cook then either. And we did do a better yeah. job of feeding ourselves. <laughs> I'm not saying I we do... should go back to women only cooking. That's <laughs> not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> I do do a mean banana bread, though. I'll, I'll just, I'll just try, try and rec recover myself a bit Stir there. Stir-fried, right? <laughs> Stir-fried. <laughs> Barbara, it's been fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being our guest. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been really interesting to talk about all these different topics and, and kind of chew the cud on it. It's been great. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.